RTI International's Justice Practice Area presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In episode two of our trauma-informed research methods mini-season, Just Science sat down with Katherine Bright, a sexual violence researcher, to discuss the importance of prioritizing trauma-informed data collection methods. Researchers are often conditioned to collect data in a way that minimizes methodological error and prioritizes scientific output. As a result, there is a need to reevaluate research priorities to ensure that participants and staff are working in an environment where they feel safe and connected. Listen along as Catherine describes a three-pronged approach to trauma-informed research, specific ways to increase choice and agency for participants and research staff, and how she develops her evolving research practice. This episode is funded by the RTI International's Justice Practice Area. Some content in this podcast may be considered sensitive and may evoke emotional responses or may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Here are your hosts, Jacqueline Houston-Kolnick and Rebecca Pfeffer. Hello and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Jacqueline Houston-Kolnick, and I'm here with my co-host, Rebecca Pfeffer, and we are researchers at RTI International in the Victimization and Response Program. In today's episode, we continue our conversation on trauma-informed methods, To date in this series, we've discussed what the phrase trauma-informed means and why it's important to consider. Today, we're going to expand upon this, go to the next step, and talk about what it means to collect data in a trauma-informed way. Here to discuss this is Catherine Bright from the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks so much for taking time to talk with us today. Thanks for having me. It's so fun because we talked about this, Catherine. I don't know if you remember this, at American Society of Criminology Conference. And I was like, I want you to come be on this podcast (laughs) if we ever make it happen. And here we are. So Catherine, tell us about yourself. Who are you and what do you do? I am a qualitative researcher. I've been doing it for, I don't know, 15 years. And before that, I was a practitioner. So early in my 20s, I spent a lot of time working directly with young men who were either in part of the child welfare and and foster care system or were returning back home or back to the community from a, a stint in juvenile justice. And after that, I worked with teen mothers who were experiencing housing instability and and homelessness. And so I worked in a in a shelter for homeless teen moms and their children for a long time. And I continued working with teen mothers who did a lot of state policy work after that. And then became a researcher full time in that capacity of almost exclusively worked with um survivors of violence and and more often than not sexual violence and gender violence. And so that has sort of been an evolution in the last 15 years. And I'm just, you know, very late in the game, wrapping up a PhD. Not late in the game. Just, you know, taking all that experience, bringing it in to your PhD. Congratulations on that. So, you know, a question that we're asking folks across the board, because I think it's really interesting to hear folks' different answers is about the phrase trauma-informed. So, Catherine, when you use this terminology, what do you mean? I'm glad you're asking this. This has also come up. I have been rolling out this project and a pilot project on 
instituting trauma-informed methods and in research and been like talking to people for interviews who are doing this work and trying to train cops. And they're just like, you know, we are like, yes, we're on board. We like want to do this. And then they sort of ask everybody and everybody has a different model and everybody has a different idea of what trauma-informed is. And there is no sort of systematic universal description of it. And so for me, I think about it a lot in the ways that I now think about any other sort of scientific or methodological approach, right? There is a theoretical shift that has to happen, right? So one part is sort of shifting the way that you think about the work theoretically and the goals of what you're doing, right? The big picture sort of shift. And then I think there's all of the institutional trauma-informed practices. So like, what are you doing on a daily basis? And what does your research project look like? And what does your team look like? And then there's the third part, which is the structural environmental changes, right? And I think researchers often sort of confuse a trauma-informed practice with ethical practices and like ethical practices are important, but that's not a trauma-informed approach, right? And so I work off of the assumption that everybody that I interact with as part of a research project has experienced trauma because there's just not a way to be a human and not experience some form of trauma, right? So it's like shifting an approach that everybody that you're working with on your team in leadership, your participants, you yourself are working with experiences of trauma and also are navigating the world and engaging with you and your research in a way that is often about either a desire to feel safe or to feel connected, And that if people don't feel safe or connected, then they're screening you on some level as as a potential threat. And then what is your data? That's a really helpful introduction to this, Catherine. And we really appreciate you sort of providing that framework for understanding this issue. And in this particular episode, we are focused on data collection and the practice of, of learning from the community, from others. And can you talk to us a little bit about how you practice being trauma-informed in your data collection? I know it's foundational to your work, and this is an area where you have so much to offer the field. So can you just tell us a little bit about what that means to you in your work? Yeah. You know, there's been an evolution of that. And I say that because I think often we're trained as researchers that the ultimate goal is to be so conditioned and consistent in our methodological practices that we make no mistakes, right? That like everything that we do is calculated in a way to remove scientific error. And I think if you spend any time with survivors or community members, that is so antithetical to like anything that is true of community survival, right? And so what it looked like 20 years ago when I started still looked different than what other researchers were doing. But that really just came out of the fact that like I had an ability to sort of sit in space with people in a way that read to them as as safer than some other folks, right? And now it's really morphed into like a very systematic practice that I have built and that I continue to keep tweaking and that I often make mistakes in. And so one, I think, 
we're trained to be researchers. Like you're literally trained to look around and find all these other people who are doing the thing that you're interested in and to learn from all of them and to then like figure out for yourself sort of where are the gaps and then like creating a project that like institutionalizes and systemizes those steps. And then you know, when we talk about this, it often gets sort of positioned as like an alternative form of science. But I would argue that in the latest stage of my work, I've really tried to shift that thinking to make it more systematic as a way of being able to communicate about it, but as a way for it to also just make sense for me working with the skill sets that I have, which is like, I need to categorize stuff. So I started this last project with a set of trauma-informed and equity values and principles. And that was co-created by multiple survivor consultants and research team members and research assistants. And then that became my modus operandi, right? So like all of the decisions that I make about data collection are based off of that set of principles. And when I am faced with a conflict or a tension, then I return to that set of principles to make decisions. So that was like the first step that became my orienting document instead of what I was trained to do, which is like thinking about like sample size or access. And so the shift is really about the priority being safe and connected experiences of research instead of the research that I got at the end of the of the project. And so working off of those principles, like the trauma-informed principles, we all know them. And so those practices meant that like, one, we have like a very diverse and survivor-informed team. And they really pushed back on a lot of the ways that I thought I was doing trauma-informed practices, right? And so like one of those things is thinking about compensation. You know, we all work within funding limits and, you know, like we're trained that there is this long history of research exploitation of participants and there has been. And so I was the very set, everybody gets an equitable form of compensation. Everybody like gets paid for their work. And survivors really pushed back on that in a couple of ways. Like one, because it assumes that like everybody is in financial need and that's what they're participating and engaging in the work for. And it also, you know, goes against the ideas of sort of like survival and community skill training and that it removes choice and agency in a sort of paternalistic way, right? And that the problem with the original scenario is things like offering author creditship or like a line on their resume that they were participating in research or being able to present or be on writing projects is like that choice was coming from somebody in a position of power instead of somebody making the best decisions for themselves. So like we changed that both for research participants so they can choose whether or not they want monetary compensation. They can also choose to have an exchange of labor, which means our research team has to give them back an hour of our work and our time in any way that would be helpful for them. They can also donate their interview And they can pitch their own form of compensation. And so they have all of those choices for how they get compensated, which was like a huge shift for me. We also fundraised, right? So we just have a a pot of money for when folks are in a situation and in an emergency situation, we have a way to provide support. 
which is sort of a signal that instead of a one-way relationship in which I'm extracting something from you and I'm giving you $30 and that's in, right? It signals that like I care about you as a human outside of this context. And then I have a lot of power and, and agency to provide something for you if I sort of get rid of the tentacles of an objective scientific research practice that says that like I shouldn't be involved in that. There's multiple ways to participate in the project. And that was also about like creating choice and agency, right? So folks can do a written online interview so that they never have to talk to a human, which may never feel safe for them. They can choose to do a traditional virtual interview. We've figured out a way to make sure that there is a survivor in the room. Um, if that would make them feel safer and more comfortable, they can also debrief with a survivor after the interview that has nothing to do with me. It's not recorded. It's not part of the project. They also, we've formed survivor and peer-led spaces so folks could think that they wanted to participate in the study and then decide that they did not, that they would like to, you know, be a part of these communities that has nothing to do with research. But those are a few of the ways I think we've sort of shifted how we think about the work and tried to create models that for most people feel like really murky but really lean heavily on the idea of like choice and agency is what you're reaching for all of the time. And that a high degree of transparency while making mistakes still reads as safe to most survivors. We work from a space where that transparency is really upfront because people with information are able to make a lot of decisions about how to keep themselves safe. Um, and it's only when you're sort of throwing a lot of curveballs without explanation, that people start to get really disoriented and feel like there's something to be nervous about. I think that vulnerability and transparency piece is so important, not only in how we engage with folks that we're wanting to do research with or alongside, but also then that research team component, right, to open up space for there to be mistakes for someone to say, I need a break. And to demonstrate that, we talked about this in our very first episode of the series of like, how do we demonstrate this as leaders too, right, of projects that sometimes I need a break and how that transparency and vulnerability is so key to how then it infuses in every part of our projects. Yeah. I mean, one of our values is around flexibility. So I should say like that compensation thing that I was talking about, we also applied to our research team, which is also sort of a new model of thinking about exchange of labor and services and financial need and barriers. So for some consultants, I paid a lump sum up front and trusted that they were honorable and honest laborers like we do for many people in the academic community. For some people, they really needed to feel like there was going to be a consistent paycheck every two weeks. So I just paid them every two weeks. For some people, they weren't sure about the number of hours they were going to be able to give me. So then I paid them in relationship to the number of hours that they did. So we didn't have a consistent pay structure, right? We met people where they were at on the team. And then a flexibility meant that like people dropped off for months at a time, right? That they had medical emergencies or trauma-related emergencies or just like burnout-related emergencies. 
And I think if you're thinking about doing a trauma-informed project or working with a traumatized community, right? Like you need a bigger team because people are going to have to tap out for a host of reasons. One, because like not all people should be doing all things on a research project. And two, you need to be able to fill in who's doing what when people tap out. And there's like a practice and research of just like working harder and longer and more often than everybody else as a sign of sort of like pride. And you can't do that if you're also doing trauma-informed work because it's exhausting (laughs) and takes a lot of time to build trust and flexibility requires deadlines that change. And if your orienting value is sort of a final product, an outcome, then like all of that is going to be incredibly difficult to do and meet a trauma-informed practice. So there were times when people were like, I cannot do this part of the project anymore. And I was like, okay, great. Then we're going to put you on another part of the project. And that meant that as a leader, if I was going to roll out anything on the project, I had to work with the framework that I, it was my responsibility to do it on the assumption that my entire team could burn out and whatever needed to get done, I had to be willing and capable of doing, right? So like, we shouldn't be building projects on the assumption that the people that work for us are going to be able to execute all of the work. If you cannot do it all by yourself, then you shouldn't roll it out as part of the project because that creates an inherent structure in which people are compelled, whether they're safe and connected or not, to have to do work. And it means that you as a leader are making decisions about the work having to get done versus what is like healthy and safe and connected for your team. And I think that's just sort of like an orienting shift that is hard for us to build models around, but means that this work that is about hard stuff anyways becomes harder in the nature of it. But I think that thoughtfulness is so motivating. Like at the same time, I find it so fulfilling like to be doing this work, right? And then to be doing it thoughtfully is motivating in a different way. I should clarify that like, I don't find trauma-informed practices exhausting. Working and studying the things that we work and study when you are not engaged in a practice that is like healthy, safe, or connected is exhausting because it's just terrible to listen to people's stories of intense and severe and horrible trauma over and over and to be in that space every day. And so I think we're all doing that work anyways, which is why it has always surprised me, like in a social work field, there are a bunch of practices that are built in because there's a recognition that you're listening to stories of trauma or you're working with people who have experienced trauma and that you're in your daily work is incredibly difficult emotionally and also very meaningful. And you want to keep people working in that for a long time and you want people to keep caring and being empathetic. And so they had to figure out how to sort of merge As researchers, we're often doing a version of that same kind of difficult work for the same motivated reasons, but there are no structural practices to help us put the difficulty of that work on an emotional level, right? That we are also hearing stories of trauma all the time and and there's no practices for us to do anything with that. And so like a trauma-informed practice is part of an attempt to keep good researchers who really care and are empathetic witnesses and love this work with an ability to keep doing the work in healthy and safe and connected ways 
for years instead of what happens, which is that everybody burns out at the end of a project or in the middle of a project that people leave jobs or they're like, I can't do this work anymore. It's so critically needed, but I'm actually going to go study whatever, because like, I just like can't possibly do this work anymore. And we, and we need good researchers to stay. So we've been talking quite a bit about like qualitative methods. So I'd be curious, because I imagine we might have some quantitative listeners who are more geared in that direction. Do you have any recommendations specifically for how quantitative data collection can be trauma-informed? Yeah, I love this question. Um, So the thing that I always say is, okay, like, you know, when you go to the doctor and they ask you, how many drinks do you drink a week or how many times do you work out in a week? Right. And I'm like, everybody lies on that form. Everybody goes into the doctor's office and nobody is telling any doctor the absolute truth. You're moving that needle one way or another. And so <laughs> part of that is like, you do not feel safe or connected in that doctor's office. You know, that doctor is going to judge you if he looks at your sheet and like you've responded on a bunch of things that you think are going to make you look bad. Right. But I've had, when I have had doctors that are like, so you exercise four days a week. And then I'm like, well, um, yeah, I mean, like, I, I like go for a, a walk. Some, like, I don't like, I mean, I like stretch and I, um, I don't know. What are we counting as like exercise? Oh, um, we, I, do you move your arm? We can count that as exercise. Did you walk down the stairs to get a cup of coffee? Great. That's exercise. Did you write like, and I'm like, oh, okay. Now let me, I should probably fill out that form again because now I feel like safe and connected. And so I'm going to tell you the real truth. So I think for quantitative folks, like, first of all, ain't nobody telling you the truth on that form that you fill out. And not because people, you know, I want to be really careful, not because people are lying for the sake of lying. People who have experienced trauma keep themselves safe by expecting that you are going to use this information in harmful and terrible ways. And that is not good for data quality. So like if you are a quantitative person and you care about data quality, then you should care about trauma-informed methods because the way that people fill out your scantron of of bubbles, right, is going to depend on whether or not they read you or your team as people that they can be fully transparent and honest with, especially with the things that we study. And unlike in qualitative, where you have a lot of ability to make that feel natural or to build trust even within an interview, like that's not happening in quantitative methods, right? So you have very little ways to have that come across in a paper form. There was a project that I was working on where I actually didn't do any qualitative researcher um, that we had survivors do the actual interviewing. And so I took on the sort of labor and barriers of just consenting people into the project. And then, you know, the pieces of the feedback that we got at the end of it was like, oh, that person calling me made fun of herself. She kept saying that she was messing up all the technology, like that girl cursed through the entire consent process. That made me agree to do this survey where I had no interaction with any other member of your team. So like you can do quantitative work and still find ways to make sure that you are showing up in trauma-informed ways. I think about (laughs) the consent process. What does the consent form look like? 
There are ways for that to be trauma-informed. There are ways for that consent process to scare the bejeebies out of people, right? Like that is a point of contact for quantitative researchers. I think there's things like thinking about trauma fatigue, that the ability to like actually read text for the length of a survey is very hard for folks who have had, you know, significant impacts to the way that like order and, and thinking happens, right? Or like things like memory recall, that it can be when you ask like, well, when did this event happen? Folks who have experienced trauma are not able to recall specific dates or specific, you know, points in their life. They can tell you like, well, I was sort of in college, but like, I don't know in the four or six or eight years I went to college, what year this event happened. So you can think about how you're writing questions in a trauma-informed way. Uh, you can think about building in breaks and signals into a survey the same way that you would do it for a qualitative research project. You can think about the ways in which even if the form of data collection that you're bringing in is not very human-based, what 16 other points can you do before and after that do form a connected experience for somebody who is then filling out your hand-drawn, right? So we have a study website for our project. It has all of our values. It has survivor-built sort of trigger responses that could be helpful to folks. It has a bio for all of us with our faces so that we are not a lethal people in the universe that are asking you to fill out this form. Um, our consent processes are up there. Uh, we're very transparent about how long the research project will take. Like you are going to fill out this form and it will be two and a half years before you hear anything from it, right? And like, here are all the ways that we're going to try to create a point of contact with you in between those two years so that you feel like you are still a connected part of this project. And I think the other thing that quantitative researchers don't think about and should is that if you are working and studying something that is incredibly traumatic and you have reduced it to just numbers, that your team is no less likely to fall apart in response to doing that work. Because unlike qualitative work or interviewing, when I interview folks, like we talk about trauma but I also hear about their kids and I hear about what school they're doing and I hear about their side hustles and I hear about the speech that they just gave and I laugh and there's a humanity where they are a full person outside of just the experience that I'm talking to them. When you're doing a project about intimate partner homicide and all you're looking at is people who have been murdered and reduced to a number on a screen, like you get no parts of what the qualitative interviewer gets. And that can be incredibly painful for your team. So again, in thinking about trauma-informed methods, it's not just what you're doing at the participant level, but how you're thinking about your team and burnout. And I think often the experiences is like, oh, well, we're not talking to any humans, so we're not listening to stories of trauma. So like everybody will be fine because it's disconnected and it's removed. But actually, I think people, teams have a much harder time when there's no structure in place to deal with the fact that like you're studying this really hard thing. Everybody's been reduced to a number or a data point, And there's no process for what that feels like on quantitative teams often. And so I think like that is 
something for quantitative folks to think about. And like, they really care about things like sample size and retention. And like, those, I would argue, are easier if a community trusts you, right? You have better access. If you need people to keep filling out the survey and everybody has a terrible experience with you on day one, your ability to get them to come back three months later is going to be more difficult. If you do not have trauma-informed practices, then you just like texting them three months later to be like, fill out this survey is not going to be a particularly helpful way for folks to do the thing you need them to do, right? That you, The things that they care about are also the things that are helped and improved by trauma-informed methods. That was a really compelling overview. Thank you so much. I mean, and I think that's really important because it's a little bit easy to understand or make the connection between the importance of trauma-informed practices and, you know, the type of research that the three of us do, which is really centered around gender-based violence and interpersonal violence. But these principles are so important across multiple disciplines. And I think it's important that practitioners and researchers in other fields also think about these same principles, but it may be feels a little bit less directly applied sometimes to folks. So I think that was a really helpful way to to provide a bridge to these other fields and other areas of interacting with people in our work. And we just wanted to ask one last question for you, sort of your your biggest takeaway. What would you like to leave listeners with today? I think that nobody gets into research because they are callous and uncaring individuals, right? That people that are doing research see that there is something harmful that exists in the world and they are trying to fix it, right? I think that the translation of that into scientific training often leaves no room for that part of our like motivation or identity to keep showing up and to keep being present. And when you remove humans from science, you're losing a richness of interpretation. And when you remove connection from science, I don't believe that you are setting yourself up to have the best data that you possibly can, right? And so then you're entering space where you see a problem and you care about that problem and you're trying to fix the problem. But the way that you've been trained to is to remove all elements of yourself and connection and transparency and authenticity, which makes no one feel safe ever, right? And not just traumatized folks or people who experience trauma, right? Like that's true for all of us. That's again true when we walk into the doctor's office or a job interview or at the bank, right? And so we also participate in coping and behavior and human interaction in ways that keep us safe and protected as well. You know, trauma-informed methods, I think, often sort of get categorized as like everybody has to become a therapist in order to do it. And you're going to sit around and talk feelings all day. And that that feels overwhelming and I can't possibly do that in my job or relearn how to do that in my work. And I think that that freezes people up. But in thinking about all scientific methods are about tweaking and refining the tools that you have in systematic ways to get the best possible data that you can so that you can make informed 
recommendations about how we fix a problem that you really care about. And I'm just arguing that in order to reach that goal, you can't create barriers for folks to feel like they have to operate in a space with you to keep themselves like safe and protected. Because there's just like no way that you're going to get the best possible data that you can. You know, thinking about quantitative researchers who like when there are flaws in their data, they do things like weight those flaws, right? They shift sample size. But like there's ways of them correcting for the human errors or the errors or the flaws in their data. And they do it in a systematic way. And we call that good and rigorous science. And the argument here is like, we're doing all of those same things, right? You're taking a method and you are applying it to a research context and you're continually tweaking it so you can get the best possible quality and the most rigorous data that you can. And so it isn't about feelings and about becoming a therapist so much as it is about improving a suite of tools that you have at your disposal to be the best scientist and the least harmful one, which like if we could just stop being harmful people in the universe, that would be great. What a way to end it, Catherine. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your platform of choice. I'm Jacqueline Houston Kolnick, and I was joined by Rebecca Pfeffer, and this is another episode of Just Science. Next week, Just Science sits down with Dr. Rebecca Campbell to discuss trauma-informed project management. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.